Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. Today, I'm talking with John and Mike. We've got a great topic, but first I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Erica Berlin, the Executive Director of the Film Society. My name is John Lyons. I am a filmmaker and the Director of Programming for the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. That. That's clever. So today um, we're coming to you two weeks after our last recording and a lot has happened here in our world. The Russians have invaded Ukraine. That's a pretty um, massive, massive um, historical event that we're all reeling from. We're all checking our phones every 15 minutes to see what's going on. And we're all dealing with it in different ways. But I think I can speak for all three of us and for the rest of the world that it's devastating and we're all struggling, I would say. I am um, struggling, first of all, for the Ukrainian people to see what they're going through, to understand that on a global level, it impacts everyone. It impacts the political world. It impacts the humanity that we all seem to share, I think, that we all understand every day um, as people, as citizens of the globe, that we don't believe that we treat people this way as citizens of nations and citizens of the globe. It's it's really hard to comprehend, right? So, um, you know, John is a filmmaker and all of us as, as film enthusiasts and lovers. And one of the things that we come together to talk about um, is movies, right? And film as an expression of feeling and art and documentary is a huge piece of that, right? So right now, journalism is a huge um, thing that we're all relying on, right, to, to show us what's going on. And documentary is the piece that is recording this right now. So we're relying on the documentarians to tell us what's happening. And 10, 15, 20, 100 years from now, we'll all be looking back at the documentaries that are going to tell tell us the stories of what's happening now and how this conflict will be resolved. Um, and right now we don't know what that resolution is going to be. And right now I think we're all terrified at what that resolution is going to be. Right? Yeah, just, uh, you know, our, our minds with everyone else are uh, with the Ukrainian people, with everyone uh, in Europe. Um, it's a really scary time when you have uh, a nuclear power uh, invading another country. It, we haven't been in this situation for a while, and um, yeah, it's, it's scary. So, and like Erica, you were saying, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, if you just rely on uh, the political actors from both sides to provide the story, you're missing quite a lot. Um, there's a lot of uh, 
you know, people people want to have the narrative um, supporting uh, their side. So filmmakers uh, hopefully are the independent minded um, kind of uh, artists on the ground, if you will, to give us more of the true story behind these events without propaganda. Um, and Erica, there's a, a filmmaker, uh, a well-known filmmaker that uh, just fled Ukraine, um, who was there working on a project. Who, who was that? It's actually, you know, someone who hits the ground when there are world crises, if you can believe it. Um, that would be Madonna's ex-husband, <laughs> to use the words of Mike Berlin. Uh, That's right. The uh, the husband of Madonna, no Guy Ritchie, no I, oh. Guy Ritchie, another filmmaker. No, Sean Penn. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait, name the movie that Guy Ritchie made with Madonna. I, I can see the poster, but swept I... away. Swept away. Mike, do we own that movie? I've never seen that movie. No. I'm pretty sure that we have that DVD in our collection. No, we do not. I think I've seen it. I've never seen it. I've yeah. seen it. It's not good. I'm sure, pretty sure it's not good. I remember it got panned. It's it a remake, good. isn't it? It is. It, that is correct. It is a remake. Uh, it sure took yeah. a turn. Yeah. <laughs> is Sean Penn in any of Madonna's music videos? Oh, man. Shanghai Surprise. <laughs> Shanghai Surprise. Wow. Okay. 1986, a classic. With a 16% Metascore and 11% Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> okay. Well, there's your trivia for you. Talk about world disasters. All right. Whew. Well, thank you. Although, in my research, I did find that Madonna is still tweeting her support for Sean Penn. So, that's great. You know, there you go. Time heals so, all wounds. That's right. Time heals all wounds. So anyway, in November 2021, uh, Sean was over in, in Ukraine um, in the Donbass region. So um, the conflicts between Ukraine and Russia go back hundreds, I mean, hundreds, thousands, I don't know, years, many, a long, long time. Okay, so this isn't just... Russia got bored one day and decided to try to take Ukraine back. I mean, these are conflicts that have that have been going on for quite a long time. And the conflict that has been going on, uh, right, you know, that has prompted this invasion um, has been going on, been going on since Ukraine has become a democracy. So the past 30 years, it's a very new democracy in Ukraine and Russia has never really gotten over it. So about in, in 2014, Russia decided to take um, part of, of Ukraine back. And so since then, um, there's been a conflict punctuated by some, by some intermittent fighting. Ceasefires, then fighting. Ceasefires, then fighting. And that's over in the eastern part of the country. And so that's what you hear about a lot on the news every day when they're pointing at the southeastern part of the country. That's where a lot of the uh, combat is happening. So 
Sean's been going there for the past few months working on this documentary. When the invasion happened, he's there, right? And he's getting a lot of praise from the president's office, okay? They're saying things like, our country is grateful to him to show courage and honesty. Sean Penn is demonstrating bravery that many others have been lacking, in particular some Western politicians. The more people like that, true friends of Ukraine, who support the fight for freedom, the quicker we can stop this heinous invasion by Russia. So the president's office of Ukraine is really giving him a lot of props. And we'll see how he does with his documentary, but the work that he does is really, um, he really is committed to making a difference in regions of the country that have terrific strife going on. He did have to flee Ukraine like most people. Um, he left just yesterday for Poland and like a lot of people had to abandon his vehicle and walk across the border to Poland. So just because you're a celebrity doesn't mean you like get some sort of special lift out of the country. You still have to. And he <laughs> you're probably still gonna wouldn't run out of gas. But I remember he, he wouldn't take it either, right? Like when, when he was in uh, Haiti and stuff like that, he, uh, he doesn't want any star treatment. He's... No, he doesn't. He yeah. doesn't. And in fact, when he was in Haiti, um, he actually founded an organization called JH Haitian Relief Organization. Um, and he worked on the ground. He, he worked alongside people within the country. He got special recognition from the leaders of the country. And, um, you know, he continues to kind of get some haters that are saying, oh, you're just doing this for, you know, the special attention. You're doing it for PR. And to quote him, uh, he hopes they die of screaming of rectal cancer. So, <laughs> um, And so, you know, in, in situations like this, you've got to look at someone like Sean Penn, who clearly has a short fuse. Um, going way, way back to the 80s when he was married to um, Madonna, he got a reputation for beating up, um, you know, photographers when they tried to get photos of her. You know, he's someone with a lot of passion. Yeah. So what, passion for, you know, maybe on one side of things, um, but also passion to, to take action in the world. And so he's definitely done that. Um, These passions it, are much better than just tweeting, uh, you know. Oh yeah. Or hashtagging Ukraine. Like he's he's out there, he's walking the walk. So much much respect for that. Much respect for Sean Penn. Yep. And so we'll see. You know, when this documentary is finished. Um, well, I guess the. Uh, I guess it's really sad to say. I mean. Because when is the documentary finished? When is the conflict finished? You know. Well, yeah. I mean, it might be, it might be a while before we see it. I don't know. Do do you or Mike remember if this was going to be like a documentary series or if it was like a one-off? I don't think that was announced. Uh, and you know, with Vice, I, I know that they've done a few uh, features. Uh, but obviously they're more well-known for their episodic um, channel and the stuff they've done for HBO. Uh, although I would assume uh, with Penn affiliated with the project, they were probably looking at something that was larger in scope. Well, 
you know, he has a really nice quote about this. Um, like I said, quite passionate, but, you know, his goal is to tell the world the truth about Russia's invasion. He says it's already a brutal mistake of lives taken and hearts broken. And if he doesn't relent, I believe Mr. Putin will have made a most horrible mistake for all of humankind. President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people have risen as historic symbols of courage and principle. Ukraine is the tip of the spear for the democratic embrace of dreams. If we allow it to fight alone, our soul as America is lost. All right. Sean Penn's words. Sean Penn's words. It's a bit... It's powerful, but makes you think, you know... Every day we do in, if we don't stop and reflect on the gratitude we should have for our democracy that we, that we do, I think some days take for granted, you know, the fact well, that we don't have anyone holding, you know, we don't have state TV that is limiting what we can and can't tweet about. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to open up that whole can of worms. <laughs> no. <laughs> let me, um, let me post a question to you guys. Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it's film and uh, television is not the newest media, and in the past, we've had examples of people and filmmakers who have been on the forefront of such historic events, whether it was uh, most notably really around World War II, uh, when it was like Rossellini's uh, Rome Open City, when he was filming in Italy uh, during the, the shelling of Rome uh, during World War II. And then you have even prior to that, somebody like, uh, uh, oh, I'm gonna butcher her name, uh, Lenny Reifenstahl, uh, Triumph of the Will, when she was uh, documenting his, uh, Hitler's rise. And back then, I think it, what's interesting is, you know, film uh, was used- Was documenting. Was documenting, it was documenting, but like, but now- You don't but, see the- John, John says documenting in air quotes. In, in, in air quotes. Uh, but now with everybody having a camera, and if, like, what, how, do you, how do you think this has changed on some level? I, and John, we spoke before the podcast about, you know, the Arab Spring, but like, how do you think this has changed the approach uh, and the responsibility of quote unquote filmmaking or in air quotes, documenting? Any thoughts on that? I mean, it definitely has given more power um, to the people, which I am definitely a big fan of uh, because, uh, you know, some of, some of the uh, aforementioned examples, Mike, um, yeah, or more propaganda than documentary and, uh, you know, technicality, I, I feel, to classify them as documentary. But, yeah, it's harder to hide the truth when um, everyone has uh, a, a camera in their pocket. Um, the other thing, too, is taking things out of context also, which is very um, – that's kind of a new challenge, you know, in – in our media now where you can just take a 10 second sound bite and talk about that on 24 hour mainstream news for a week. Um, you could possibly be missing some of the story and is there due diligence to make sure that 
photography and videos and stuff like that um, are confirmed to be coming from that time and that time period. So, yeah, it's a challenge to be so um, inundated the other way now where we have such massive collections uh, of photography and videography everywhere at our fingertips. Um, do we have, you know, people who we, that we can trust to tell us what's true and what's not um, and not be reliant on uh, shareholders and whoever's paying for their ads during commercial breaks and what they want to see. It's tough. Well, you have new challenges now. Yeah. But, but I think it is harder overall to hide the truth or get close. We should be able to get closer to the truth if um, we have more diverse mindset and more diverse uh, sources of news than we used to in the old days. Do you think it's changed on some level? So that's the filmmaker side of thing. Do you think it's changed some level for the consumer? Because you used to have to go to cineplexes and the, uh, the independent movie film houses, and then it might have been shocking back in the day. But with all with us having so much access to everything, are we as a viewer becoming numb to these things because let's be honest if had we sort of t heeded the warnings of Zelensky and the Ukrainian government beforehand especially when Russia overtook uh, the Crimea uh, the Crimea peninsula in 2014 like the all the signs all the all the signs were there for us to uh, to, to take it seriously and uh, for various reasons obviously not just because of you know watching it on our cell phones and stuff like that but we ignored it what was happening and now here the world is finding itself in a much more serious plight and yeah and we've ignored uh there's you know yemen is going on right now Syria yeah. just went on i i do think there's there's so much going on and that um you know manufacturing consent is real and that includes the media deciding which stories to elevate around the world um I don't know. It's very risky. Uh, I, I think it's hard to make sure that every every one of us is discerning with uh, the information that's out there. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. What do you think, Erica? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I think that in terms of discerning the information being out there, in particular, like with the Ukrainian conflict in particular, one of the things I like to hear is, okay, we have video of this, but we can't confirm it yet, which I like because that means that they haven't taken it. Like if like social media footage, you can get it, you know, like we got this from somebody's Twitter feed. Like I, from what I hear now, I'm not a Snapchat user, but I've heard that there is a lot of information. Like there's a lot of video. There's a lot of information being passed around on social media, which I appreciate because there are people in Ukraine, citizens that are capturing content because it's happening right in front of them. You know, there's not journalists everywhere. Something is happening at any given moment, you know, and something happens outside your door, you're going to capture it. And that information is going to be shared, you know, but 
you know, something could have happened five days ago or two days ago in another part of the, the country and someone might be trying to pass it off as this just happened, right? And that information can be used for good or for bad. Um, and someone could be using that politically to say, oh, look what this uh, news service just announced as something that just happened. Well, it actually just happened five days ago, you know? And so there's just things like that can be used to try to um, dampen someone's <laughs> credibility, you know, that kind of bullshit. And um, so that could be either good to, to hurt or to help. Um, but, you know, I just actually was looking at this, that there are um, fact checkers now and their only job is to take digital content to confirm where it was filmed. Because now you pick up your iPhone and you look at video or you look at a photo and it has exactly, it has like the geolocation of where it was, you know, where it was filmed, what time it was filmed. And most, you know, normal citizens aren't going around and like right. fiddling with that data. That's really, you know. let me pause you just really quick. That's really interesting. Because as soon as you said fact checkers, I like cringe inside. Because honestly, shouldn't all journalism be like that built into their DNA? And like, as soon as I hear that we have like, we need fact checkers, then I wonder like, okay, who's paying their payroll? And like, you know, because shouldn't we've gotten to a point where journalism needs to be fact checked? Yeah, because they have one uh, source that won't go on the record that then they're going to write a story on that then everyone else is going to pick up. Right. And basically it's all come down to, is it an actual well, real but source? People, I think they have to, if, if you gave me information, I want to go see, I want to try to verify that information. So that's what I think fact checking means. It means you might've sent me that video and I'm going to take you at face value that you gave me that video. Thanks. I want to go make sure that this video is valid. I love I think the metadata thing because, yeah, that's more that's more legit. I, I just, you know, if it becomes more of an opinion, uh, kind of a leaning one way or the other, you can kind of still color your fact checks, you know. Sure. It's not a new idea, however. There's always been uh, people, especially back in the day of the newspapers and publications, that have been redlining uh, facts and re uh, checking the sources on articles and periodicals. And if you, I mean, before a film camera even came out, we had yellow journalism. So this has always been something that we've, uh, we and news outlets have had to sort of contend with. It's just hard now because we live in a 24 seven media cycle. So it's so easy to sort of get swept up in, in what's happening and not to go back and source check what came like, is this factual? Is this correct? Yeah, something can get down the road real quick and it can be too late. Like, I love Michael Moore, but I almost, like, I, I love him. He speaks to me. I love his films. But I do wonder if there should be a separate category of documentary that is more of, like, kind of an opinion page or an editorial page in a newspaper where there's commentary or like you're directly injecting yourself into the story and commenting on stuff that to me feels like 
you know, documentary kind of makes it feel like, okay, this is all like fact, right? Like a hundred percent fact. But if you as the documentarian are appearing in there and adding kind of your color and commentary to it, I don't know. Do you all feel that that that's a, a different thing? Like if Sean Penn's piece from Ukraine, you can tell from his quotes, like he is coming down very strongly on one side, right? Like, so I wonder, you know, what what thing is more like newsy journalism versus kind of like opinion commentary kind of documentary? Should there be a difference? Should there be a designation? I, I think it would be a very hard line to decide because ultimately it can be so subjective at the end of the day. I'm, I'm going to throw out an example. What if you tried to do something where it was like Israel and Palestine? You're not going to get like you're going to get people who are going to tell you something, the same facts, but they're going to come from a different slant. And I, I don't know. It's a really interesting idea in theory, John. And I know exactly what you mean. And I love more. But like there's moments where he probably paints the brush outside of what is, you know, what some people, what some facts, fact checkers might say. It's like, hey, that's out of line. And that's not totally true what he's saying right there. Um, I can't give you an example off the top of my head, but he uh, he definitely plays his documentaries a, a little bit for entertainment as well, which I appreciate. Because sometimes it's hard to slog through the super serious stuff. Absolutely. Erica, any thoughts on docs, well, different different styles of doc well, filmmaking? But there are some documentaries that will tell a story that it would be hard to say. Okay, okay. A documentary about a school shooting. Bowling for Columbine, okay, came from, literally came out of the first school shooting that happened, really, okay, Mike and I, and John, you were a little bit older, but when Mike and I were in high school, bowling, you know, the Columbine shooting happened, and we were just blown away because school shootings were not happening and then all of a sudden these guys came in with assault rifles and we were like what that could happen at school that was devastating people were shocked you know and this door opened about guns and mental health and how wrong that was and that had a slant, all right? And the ensuing battle that has come from that between Second Amendment rights and essentially, I don't know, anti-guns or, you know, gun control, gun control. So, there are two sides, okay? So you could make a documentary about little children being murdered at school and there would be people protesting it and saying that is slanted. That is an op-ed documentary. I would never watch that. That belongs 
in a But have we always been to that point? I guess my question is, have we always been at that point? Or, you know, after Michael Moore's, and like, man, I cannot think of this guy. I think his name's like D'Souza or something like that that does all these, like Obama's the devil and documentaries. And, you know, like, did we cross, you know, were documentaries like kind of, I don't want to say bland, boring, but pretty straightforward for a while. And then we started stylizing them and adding more opinion and more commentary. And then we got to a point of where, well, these are my documentaries and those are your documentaries. You know, like we started building tribalism into what we're we're calling. I don't know if I can answer that because I don't think I was a big documentary watcher (laughs) when I was, you know, when I was younger, but I feel like, was that the tipping point? I don't know. I feel like Bowling for Columbine was like the tipping point. Yeah. For me too. Like I didn't, I didn't watch a lot of docs until like really Michael Moore probably made me interested in watching documentaries and kudos to him. It's the, it's the style, right? It's the style. I think that was it. I think it was the style, but I think that that was the, I don't know, to, maybe it was just that generational movement where you had these devastating events and then you had the medium of documentary and the style of how it changed. Yeah, Michael Moore kind of, I think, did that. I think he changed, he made documentaries opinionated. If he didn't chase down uh, Charlton Heston in that documentary and be as confrontational as he did, I, you know, this is a weird, really weird thing to say because again, I totally agree with his feelings on, obviously, on guns yeah. and school shootings. But yeah. you know, if there, if that film was done in a different way, if a Columbine documentary was done in a in a more straightforward way, would we have more progress on? gun control uh these days can pop culture uh can films like change the narrative and the politics and make it so that it's so confrontational on an issue when you do a doc that's so strong in that direction john the answer is no (laughs) no the answer is no it's a straight up no uh because it's like what we're sort of getting going back to is the history of documentary on some level and if you go back to some of the more famous ones, something like uh, Harlan County, USA, which was about the coal mines. Uh, it's just like at the end of the day, I, I know what you mean. And uh, and I think the approach to documentary films before and you really when you start to think about it, I can't I don't think we intended to talk about more so much, but documentaries used to be so much more of a linear story of like point A to point B. And this is what's happening and this is the situation. But at the same time, I don't think it was necessarily trying to change minds or uh, and anything that was was con- fell under the umbrella of po- propaganda. I think what, a thin blue line, though, a thin, a thin blue line changed it, a lot. You're right. Now, that's probably that's probably the best uh, best answer. It, and it did change a lot, but it took it still. How long did that take? You know, uh, and now it still is a, a, a triumph in filmmaking, period, not just documentary filmmaking, but in filmmaking. Actually, a film that actually changed something in the world. What was the, John, I feel like you and I talked about this back in 2002 or whenever. The documentary 
about, no, it was years later because I was working at the Ophelia Project at the time. There was the 9-11 conspiracy documentary. That one, too. It was Bowling for Columbine and then the 9-11 conspiracy where they denied, they were like denying 9-11 or something. And those two documentaries, I think that's what it was. Like they, they, they were like the turning point because it was like, how can you deny that those events happened? You can't deny it. Like, but you you can make a compelling case. Film can be a a powerful, persuasive medium, right? Like even when you watch that and you're like, no way in hell. And then you'll be, there'll be a little, little (laughs) bit, right? And then you'll be like, oh, that is weird. And then they kind of like get under your skin, right? I don't know. That's what I love about film, right? Yeah, it was, yes, it was something. And then it was like the audio clip it was there was something about it where it was a documentary and then it went black and then they had an audio clip and it was that audio clip that was trying to prove god what was it called and then they probably followed that up with some very emotional music and it started getting your blood pumping and then you're like mm-hmm. holy shit oh I fahrenheit 911 fahrenheit 911 also, like, Michael, no, also was, Michael Moore. That was Michael Moore's movie. That's also Michael Moore. Yes. No, but that wasn't it. There was. Yeah, there was another one. conspiracy one that was. I think I watched it. Wasn't like, it the? It's the French. It's the French brothers, wasn't it? Who did? Who uh, put? Yeah, and uh, they did their because they were there and they happened to have ground footage of the event. I mean, Mike, you'll agree that film is that? a very manipulative. A very successfully manipulative medium. I mean, you reference, Absolutely. you know, the Liefenstahl. I mean, like this, this shit works. Absolutely, and um, you know, it's, I, I, but again, that back to the, I think, when, to the original point from before. It's just like, is it before? I think documentaries. It was either educational, or it was propaganda. Now it, it's so interesting to see how it's like meshed. Yeah. And it's really meshed and uh, it has taken on this new form, which I, I think we all appreciate. And uh, but, it, you know, is it, it is it entirely factual? You know, can, can, can you even watch that, sit down and watch something like, um, like coded bias, uh, coded bias? Can you watch something like coded bias and not make and grant this an extreme case and not make an ex, uh, not make a case for the other side of things? You probably could. Yeah, if you go like oh, the safety like... and security thing. Or yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so it's just like, you know, it's it's one side of the conversation. And that's a little bit of what has happened to the genre on some level. Uh, and and uh, just only further creating divisions <laughs> in the country as we each sort of get siloed off into our own echo chambers. Um uh, real quick, uh, I, I, you know, not, uh, I'm gonna change course on you guys a little bit, and I think John, you've seen to uh, my post that aside, uh, to the side. But we just had some, uh, let's call it breaking news, uh, that Netflix is going to cease all productions, uh, in Russia at the time, and I think that this is there's an interesting other side to the conversation, um, uh, another interesting side to the conversation to be had because Russia is really steeped in some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film history. And um, I can't help but think of uh, 
Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker right now, which was one of his later films where, uh, for the viewer at home, uh, it's, I, it's one of his more, it's one of his more experimental ones. I don't know if you've ever seen it, John, but it's just I love like Tarkovsky. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but like Stalker is about a, a man who finds himself in a zone. I'm going to paraphrase really quickly because I haven't seen it since film school. A finds film himself... that literally killed people. A film that literally killed people. It is a film that literally killed people. Uh, but it's about a man who finds himself in a zone, and then when he goes outside of the zone, he sees that it's at, he inside the zone, it's a utopia. Then outside of the zone, it is a police state. And I guess I'm sort of, for some reason, my brain has been sort of going back to that film right now. Kind of makes me want to go back and watch it. Um, but... Uh, you know, and I applaud uh, the likes of Netflix, and I and as and I know that they're not releasing some films like the new uh, the Batman film, which I'm super excited about. Uh, but um, it, it's it's interesting to sort of see a country that has been so well versed in this art form starting to be siphoned off, and like a pariah state. Yeah, and there's something to me that is incredibly tragic about that as well. Thoughts? I have very mixed feelings about all of this. Like, I I can totally understand, like, hitting Russian oligarchs in the pocketbook and hurting, hurting them, hurting Putin, hurting the people in charge. The problem with a lot of, um, I think Biden might have said this in his speech last night, um, you know, you don't want to hurt the people, though. The the Russian people, um, and a lot of times with sanctions, you know, look at Afghanistan, look at Iran, look at, you know, like these sanctions like cripple citizens, like real people that are already struggling, uh, you know, to put food on the table. Um, so I know, like when I see the Batman's not going to open in Russia, um, I honestly have like really mixed feelings about that because I don't know what the infrastructure is like and as far as theater ownership and the the film industry as far as distribution and production I don't know how much of that is in the pocketbooks of the very same oligarchs that I want to see punished but if you're punishing artists in Russia and you're punishing the Russian people um, I don't know I, I feel like that's not that's not um, ending a war in Ukraine. You're gonna hate what I have to say. Say it. We I all have feel, our own opinions. I feel like if you are a heartless autocrat like Putin, you have a choice, and you are willing to decimate not only the people of Ukraine, you're decimating your own people in the process. You turn around and go back to your, the sanctions hurt you and your country. What's going to get you out of Ukraine is to go back and save your own people. Like that is what the sanctions are going to do. If you're a complete narcissist, get... like if, I don't know, does the, does it hurt a Putin? He's, he's, this is power. He wants to bring back the old empire. So yeah, but you don't have people. an empire unless you have a people. Like, go back and save your own people. You don't have an empire unless you have people that that 
that I don't know worship you, that follow you. But Russia's not a big document. Uh, Russia's not a big democracy that's like caring for their people. Like, like I know, but I I don't know. I guess it's a different perspective. Yeah. Like unless you have people that go, oh Putin, I love you. Then where is your power? Because the people, if he's willing to let the people suffer, then how is he? And then how does he have that power? So like, get your people to love you again. That's when you have your power. If you continue to let your people suffer under sanctions, then you don't have power anymore. I get what you're saying. I just wonder, does preventing the Batman from opening in Russia, it does feel a little silly to me. Like movies aren't that important, I guess. Like I love film and like it's my life, but right. preventing people from seeing the Batman, I it feels like an unnecessary pile on. I don't think the Batman is changing the the trajectory of the war. I don't yeah. I don't know. I guess Hollywood maybe can do without making the gazillion dollars that it'll make from that. Because who's that going to help? Yeah, you. I mean, okay, you can go out and see a movie, but the money that the non-Russian people are going to make, like, Hollywood is going to get that money. Are they going to then figure out how to feed the Ukrainian people? Are they going to, like, I don't... Yeah, what if Warner Brothers said, okay, I know, Mike, you want to jump in, but what if instead Warner Brothers said, a hundred percent of ticket sales from Russia, from the Batman, we are going to donate to food aid in Ukraine or something like that. Like, what if they did something like that instead then of that you're not I getting the Batman? That I would be so happy with. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't that make everyone happy and say, "Don't just cut off the Batman." Then you're going to give some little some comforts, I guess, to you know, people that are living under an autocrat to people who are surviving propaganda who don't even know what's going on in, I guess the elderly people don't know what's going on in Ukraine because everyone who's younger knows how to get around, you know, has a VPN, knows how to get around the state blocks or whatever, but give everyone something, you know, to enjoy, I guess, go to the Batman and it's kind of like a protest. It's a safe protest rich. vote. Mm -hmm. It's a because you can't go out in the streets without getting arrested. So it's kind of like a safe way to protest your government by going to see a movie. I love it, Mike. Come on, this is genius. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think that the the moment that Warner Brothers would make that announcement, the Russian government would uh, probably boy <laughs> they would boycott the film from showing. And probably all Warner Brother properties. I, I think on the dirty level, and this is sometimes the 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 let's just be fr frank, the sh the shitty side of Hollywood is that they can afford to do this because um, I think most pirating comes out of uh, Russia. Uh, I, I still think that they are uh, one of the chief um, uh, uh, culprits of uh, film piracy. So there, it, it is easy for them. It is easy for Hollywood and for streaming services to take this stand uh, because it also aligns with their pocketbook as well. Uh, it would be interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, and not to shift subjects too much to that as China becomes more aggressive with Taiwan and, and Hong Kong, 
if they would be as willing to be so cavalier and so uh, righteous towards a cause. My hunch is they would not. Mike, what do you think about holding uh, production in Russia? It, it hurts the artists. Uh, and the, again, uh, John, I kind of, it's, it's bizarre because I kind of side with you on this one. I, you know, it's just like, it's going to be the people of Russia and it's, it's important to try to make sure that we are in this and all of this, trying to make the distinction that when we are criticizing Russia, it is the government. It is not the Russian people. Um, and, um, you know, and this is going to, obviously these sanctions are going to hurt not necessarily the intended targets. And Erica, I think your sentiment from before is wonderful in theory and in ideology, but incredibly Western thinking. Uh, Russia has a long history of from all the way back to Lenin to Stalin. And I know uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin tried to sort of curb that tie. But like there's a history of this in Russia where the governments just su suppress the will of the people. Um, but it is what it is. Yeah. The, John, to your point, the artists are going to get hurt and, um, you know, that sucks. Yeah. Well, the artists aren't the only people that are being hurt. Um, I think anyone who's growing up in a, in a world like this in, in Russia that doesn't know any better right now, um, you got to wonder what kind of world they're going to know um, as they continue to to see what's going on. I mean, for people that have no clue, um, that may not even have a chance to choose to be an artist, um, you just don't know. You don't know what the future looks like right now, and none of us do. Um, but like we were saying before, I mean, for people like you, John, I mean, we all rely on on those who document in this case, and we don't see a, an end right now, um, but people like Sean, <laughs> will it be Sean Penn, you know, going back? Um, is he going to camp out in Poland for the next <laughs> few weeks or months? Probably not. Um, I guarantee you he's trying to get back in there. <laughs> There's probably I know. He's, Vice is probably saying you can't, but yeah. Although Our Vice is pretty isn't risky. Cover so. this. Yeah. Um, but you know, people that I mean, one of the people that I've really enjoyed watching, just as a note before we wrap things up, is um there's a journalist named Matthew Chase who is a correspondent for CNN, an international correspondent, and this guy is incredible. I mean, he's there every single day and I have seen him. Um, he's been lucky to get a few. Is um, he the one that's in Kiev? He's in Kiev when they started bombing. He's in Kiev. He's, I, he seems to be down and put on the Jack. Yes. Jack. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. He was he's right good. in front of a pineapple grenade and the guy is, he got in front of Zelensky at one point, but every day he's he is there close to everything he can be. Of course, yeah, just I'm... give it to us straight. That's what we need. We need Michael Chases. Just give yes. us a straight story. We're adults. Yes. We can handle it. We don't need the fluff. It's gonna right. suck. It's not gonna be quick and easy. Yeah, Michael right. Chases. 
He's a journalist. <laughs> yes. And you just appreciate that. And you know what I've also really come to really appreciate is the people who have really – got to appreciate the people who stick to learning multiple languages and how that – and how people who go into journalism, like, you see Americans who learn Ukrainian and keep – you know, they're going back and forth speaking to Ukrainians and coming back and reporting. And, you know, I listen to, Mike and I listen to the daily every day, um, listening to the New York times journalists every day. And they're incredible because they tell incredible stories, you know? So if you want really good journalism on, on, uh, the conflict, listen to the daily podcast. It's usually 20 to 30 minutes. Um, they're incredible stories on the ground. Um, I don't know, John. Are you listening to anything, or do you watch anything? Yeah, specific? I mean, I, I don't. I don't know if I want to necessarily recommend what people listen to, but I would just say that if you're listening to somebody that's saying we should start getting involved in the war and like shooting planes out of uh, the air with no fly zones and stuff like that. Those people are warmonger, uh, war hawks, and they just want nuclear nuclear war. Um, don't listen to those people oh, would be my only advice. Oh, God. No. God, no. If I hear any person that I listen to start asking, talking about we should, we should do this, we should do that, no. I just want to hear stories about what's going on, and that's it. I don't want to hear anyone saying we should do this, we should do that. I have my husband for that. <laughs> let's let's end this on a light note. Okay. What is what is what's everybody looking forward to watching this week? I have my easy one, which is I'm looking forward to the fourth episode of Severance. Oh, we haven't started watching that yet. Is it good? So good. Love it. Loving it. That's cool. What about you, Mike? I'm looking forward to We're going to go see the Batman tomorrow. Oh, so awesome. That's really cool. Uh, I finally started watching Euphoria, and I'm really digging it. It's very heavy and dark and gritty. Um, as you all know, I love Snowpiercer, so I'm into season three there, uh, which I bought because I'm so into it now I can't wait uh, for a year. Um, John, I blame you for getting me into Snowpiercer. How's season three lived up to uh, the first two so far? Seriously, really, really good. That show should not have have been that good, and it gets better and better. Oh, and we're watching finally uh, Miss Maisel, which we're enjoying quite. Oh, a bit. I want I want to get to it. Yeah, I haven't watched yet. I watched the uh, Midsummer Murders. Okay, some light, some light some stuff. Some light there. British murder mystery. It's perfect to put on and fall asleep to, John. And she does. It's a murder. It's, it's a murder show for the whole family. It's a it's a charming little British show, with a beautiful like quaint British villages and like these really. I do want to go visit there. It does look beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Just I love it. I mean, I it's on. There's like twenty six seasons on amazon prime like you can never run out you can never run out mike did you catch uh kimmy yet so i ha i have not yet no you just watched that it's a good little good little indie thriller yeah 
about technology and surveillance? It's uh, Zoe. Is it Zoe Kravitz and um, uh, who's the other uh, who plays the heavy? It's not Kathy Zeta Jones, is it? No, or no. It's pretty much all uh, Zoe. It's all Zoe. Oh, okay. Pretty yeah. much. Cool thing about Kimmy was uh, well, not necessarily cool, but it embraced like the whole during covid and mask thing so it's really the first kind of film that i've seen that you know she's kind of cooped up in her apartment and when she goes outside she has anxiety about putting the mask on and everybody outside that's extras are wearing masks and you know he kind of just puts it in that world as soderbergh always does really well you know what i watched um over break was the serpent what's the serpent oh the Serpent is based on a true story. It's on Netflix. It's about a con man and his and his wife. Um, they lure hippie travelers in uh, Thailand in the 70s, and they poison them and steal their identities. Nice. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Well, thanks for listening to Film Grain. You can always subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you like and follow the Film Society on Facebook and Instagram. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>